Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Amplify. I'm so excited to introduce today's episode to you. We have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Al Sakedi about the article that he authored for Emergency Medicine Practice on Pulmonary Embolism. And in this one-hour-long podcast, we talk about all things pulmonary embolism. We cover everything from initial suspicion to calculators to diagnostic testing to treatment and risk stratification for different treatment strategies and all the things that are available to us today. There is a lot of information here, and I guarantee you're going to learn something that you didn't know already because I learned a lot of things. Before you dive in, make sure you check out ebmedicine.net. Lots of new things there. So many articles, so many resources, the mobile app, the clinical pathways. And I'm very excited to say that all three of the pathways that appeared in that pulmonary embolism article are live at clinicalpathways.ebmedicine.net and available to you to use at the point of care today for evaluating your patient with PE or even deciding if they can go home and on what therapy. They're outstanding. And I, I just can't say enough about how fantastic this article was. So without any further ado, let's hear from Al. Welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Sam Ashu, here with T.R. Eckler. T.R.? Glad to be back. And today's special guest, Dr. Al Sacchetti, all the way from New Jersey, here to tell us about his article. Now, this is Dr. Sacchetti and Dr. Driscoll, both authors in the August 2023 Emergency Medicine Practice article on evidence-based management of pulmonary embolism in the emergency department. Al, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for the invite. Now, this is a topic that is near and dear to the hearts of, I think, every emergency physician. We are constantly thinking about pulmonary embolism, and I'm so happy to see that we have now published an article on this. Again, it's been a number of years, I think, in the EB Medicine Library since we talked about it. And I love the pathways, the clinical pathways in this article. There are three of them, one for the diagnostic approach to pulmonary embolism management, one for the directed management of pulmonary embolism, and a separate one for pulmonary embolism in pregnant patients, all of which will convert to the interactive versions for those of you who are using them, and they'll be available to you at the point of care. So, so happy to see all three of those in this article. Thanks so much for being the author. Oh, you're very welcome, except that I will tell you that there's a downside to writing these articles, and that is every patient I've seen in the last month or so, I now suspect has a pulmonary embolism. <laughs> yeah, the mom with the three-month-old couldn't understand why I was trying to give the kid TPA, but it, that aside, <laughs> yeah, it screws up how you approach patients. Yes, uh, I do feel like it's in my mind all the time. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's a good thing. Like when, when I have residents or medical students, I'm always like, you need to always think about whether or not you have a PE and how you're going to approach it. Because like it said in the article, it's concerning how common that we miss these and it's concerning how soft the presentations can be. Yeah. And I, th I think you bring up a really good point because anybody who's, who's spent any time in the emergency department knows that probably the, the, the number one thing, thing that's fooled them over the years is that unexpected PE. Mm -hmm. and, and I think you just get more and more suspicious, but at the same time, the pendulum swings the other way, and now you are trying to find a PE on a three-month-old. That I think everybody out there has a story about a missed PE, and in the article, even just in the introduction section, it talks about the, the mortality associated with venous thromboembolism, untreated up to 25%, and with appropriate care, 15 to 30 
90% of people who are treated for pulmonary embolism will die within 90 days. That really surprised me as a statistic. Yeah, it is interesting, but it, you got to be careful how you look at these statistics. And I pulled them out of the articles, obviously. But the people, they say, oh, geez, you diagnosed the PE, you treated it, and they died. But the person had end-stage cancer, and they listed the cause of death as a PE. So you, you want to be a little bit careful how you look at those things. I think that the one that, that concerned me a little bit was an article that came out of Academic Emergency Medicine that looked at what happens to people who we miss the PE on. That person that you go into your shift or your colleague says, you remember that lady you sent home, which is, the, yeah, that's the, that, that'll make your heart uh, have some PVCs. Yeah, they, they're not going to say, oh, she brought back a bag of cookies for you. But when we miss them, they do have a, um, a rather significant mortality or morbidity associated with them. So it is, again, just another reason that we want to be so, so careful with this. And when we're talking about risk factors for a pulmonary emboli, there's a nice table there, table one on page five, which lists all of the clinical risk factors. Now, you already mentioned malignancy as one of them and as one of the causes of mortality, but there are others, and these haven't changed, though, recently, right? There's still prolonged travel, immobilization, hormone therapy, trauma, obesity as a risk factor as well. Well, I think, again, you start to look at, is obesity the risk factor or is it that obese people don't move that much and they are more sedentary? The one that actually surprised me was general anesthesia or general anesthesia slash surgery. And what I learned was that anesthesia itself is prothrombotic. So it's not just, oh, you had general anesthesia and they fixed your hip. Even if you had general anesthesia and they did a laparoscopic gallbladder on you, you still have an increased risk. Mm -hmm. of, a, of a DVT. So it's the anesthetic agents play into it as well. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I hadn't actually heard that before. So that's very good to know. So if you, even if you had general anesthesia for a procedure and it was relatively minor, you still have just the risk of the medication or the anesthesia yep. procedure itself is a risk factor. Yeah. So, which again, we, and we, you know, when somebody comes in and they, their, their leg's in a cast and they had an open reduction of an ankle fracture where a PE is high on the list, when the person comes in a little bit shorter breath and they had general anesthesia and they only had something with more minor procedure, they had a kidney stone extracted, they're still at risk. Good to know. And when we're thinking about pulmonary embolism and the differential diagnosis, this encompasses pretty much all things that can make you shorter breath. Is that right? Shorter breath, lightheaded. There's that whole controversy, syncope, no syncope, near syncope, thought about syncope, all that kind of stuff falls in, into the, the picture there. But like you had alluded to earlier, pulmonary emboli have a really long litany of, of the ways they can present. I think the ones that, that certainly come to mind is any shortness of breath, anybody who's got a dyspnea and exertion that they didn't have before. But those are the ones that, that we, nobody has to remind us of. The, the person who had recent uh, lower extremity surgery stood up to get a beer and all of a sudden now they got really short of breath. And when they were walking back to the Barco lounger, they couldn't catch their breath. That, that kind of person we, we recognize right away. But some of the, the more subtle ones, the, the, not that so much in your syncope, but the, I got a little bit dizzy. I got a little bit lightheaded. I don't, just don't feel quite right. Put that in the right clinical circumstances. And I think you, you need to think about a PE sometimes there as well. Mm. Yeah, that is a constant debate in my brain whenever I see somebody who has syncope but isn't obviously in any distress, not really right. complaining of shortness of breath. And then you start to wonder, in that scenario, syncope with risk factors, maybe not any other clinical symptoms, still something you got to consider PE for. We, I, and I think you bring up a really good point, Sam. The original articles that looked at, oh, people with syncope, they all have PEs. 
no, really, when you looked at that carefully, it was they all had a whole lot of other stuff. They had prolonged immobilization and sudden onset of shortness of breath and syncope. It wasn't syncope. It's not like the person who got up in the, the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and got lightheaded and had near syncope. That person doesn't need a pulmonary embolism workup. So you got to be careful. It's syncope in the right clinical scenario, just as it's shortness of breath in the right clinical scenario. If somebody comes in and they said, yeah, I got shorter breath after I ran a hundred mile or a hundred yard dash. Yeah, I'm not worried about a PD on that person. They have a reason to be shorter breath. So like we said, it's a real subtle presentation, but it's also a presentation you can wind up chasing your tail if you don't look at the right clinical scenario that you're going to put your work up into. Like clinically, from my experience, what this article reinforced was that I needed to worry as much as I was worrying about hormone therapy, estrogen therapy, and cancer patients. Because I find that so often the stories that I hear from people about PEs that they missed are related to one of those groups. Yeah, yeah, T, you're right on. That's most of what we're going to see. But we took a look at our last thousand PE patients and we looked at all their clinical presentations. You're going to see low incidences popping up. And one of the risk factors is a pacemaker placement. The EP docs are putting in 30 pacemakers a week. Most of them are coming back with pulmonary emboli. Mm. But if you have somebody who had a pacemaker inserted and now they're short of breath and now they have dyspnea exertion, yeah, that person I am going to worry a little bit more about. Yeah, I also find it interesting, at least in my own clinical practice, the number of patients I've seen present with PE as their primary diagnosis for new onset cancer. They didn't know they had. They have a malignancy yep. somewhere they completely weren't aware of, and then they're presenting symptoms as a PE. Yeah, that's a really good point. The one thing that we're arguing in our own heads is the new onset atrial fibrillation. Because mm-hmm. our shop is a shop that cardioverts them and ships them, sends them on their way. I, I think, again, clinical picture, how it looks, do they have other risk factors? But there's a, a number of other things that are associated with the PE. And you're right, you can back into it. it they didn't come in saying, I, I have a PE. They came in saying, I was eating my Cheerios and all of a sudden my heart started racing like crazy. Okay, that's, I don't think I'm going to work that person up for a pulmonary embolism. The person who's sedentary and then says, I got up and I, and I was really short of breath just going to the kitchen and they're in new onset AFib, that person I am going to probably look a little harder for a pulmonary embolism. Have you found a few of those in that setting? Actually, we did. We have not. In all our AFib cardioversions, we have not. The thing we are always looking for is the, the stroke. We have not had any of them either. But it, it, you, if you read the text, it says, oh yeah, new onset AFib is associated with pulmonary emboli. I don't know. We haven't seen it. I, and to be honest with you, I've not seen anybody with a PE that I did make the diagnosis on who presented with new onset AFib. Interesting. And even in those new onset AFib patients after you cardioverted them, they're all going home with anticoagulation unless there's some. Yeah. Early on, we didn't send the younger ones home, but now we're sending everybody home on um, one of the uh, DOACs. Yeah. All right. And for our pre-hospital colleagues, if they've got someone who's severely short of breath, maybe they're considering pulmonary embolism. The primary thing I always ask our pre-hospital colleagues is to assist me in getting that history, especially if the patient isn't able to give it to me, family members, or sometimes I'll tell them something in the back of the ambulance that they're not going to share with me, or they'll bring in a bottle of pills or something of that sort. And that I, I find that to be just a, a critical step for my EMS colleagues. What else can they assist us with, or can they do when they've got somebody like this in their ambulance? I think that the one thing pre-hospital that I, I would say is 
you can't really treat it pre-hospital. You're not going to do a thrombectomy. You're not going to give somebody TNK. You're not going to start them on heparin. I think it's supportive care. If you really think somebody has a pulmonary embolism, you've got a classic history and stuff, I probably would try to avoid putting them on positive pressure ventilation, a, a BiPAP or a CPAP, because it's got a lot of negative physiologic effects. And if someone's got a big blocked right ventricular outflow tract, decreasing venous return to the right side of the heart by putting them on some type of BiPAP or even intubating them can be a problem. So if you really think that's the case, just uh, supportive care, let them breathe naturally, put them on a 100% non-rebreather. If you have access to it, uh, a high flow or high velocity nasal cannula is, is even better. But try not to put them on a positive pressure uh, system uh, because it does have some deleterious effects. And we've all seen it. We've intubated somebody with a pulmonary embolism and everything went to hell. So, yeah. Are you approaching fluids the same way? Are you trying to tell them to be more judicious with fluids if it's like a classic story for a PE based on the way this article gives you that data? And actually, Tara, that's a real good point because in my own mind, I, I always used to think, oh, they've got this clot load that's blocking the pulmonary vascular tree. So I'm going to give them more fluid to preload them and, and force it through. And it turns out to be extremely detrimental. Um, because that right ventricle gets dilated and giving them additional fluid only makes it worse. So yeah, I think it would be a, a good idea not to give a large bolus of fluid. And if you think about most, most of our pre-hospital people who are short of breath, we're usually fluid restricted in them anyway. And yeah, I think it might be uh, failure or it might be pneumonia. I'm not sure. COPD, we're going to run them a little dry anyway, but it's a good point. They come in and their blood pressure is a little bit soft, but you don't want to give that person the, the two liters of fluid on the way in. Good. And then when they finally make it to the emergency department and it's our turn to try and do a history and physical, this is primarily in the history area asking those questions about clinical risk factors and recent symptoms, right? Yeah, I, I think that's about the best you can do. Was it sudden onset, gradual onset? And again, like both of you have stressed, it's great if you have a classic history, but some of these other much more subtle histories are still going to be consistent with a, a pulmonary embolism. Get the history, but I, there's not a lot on it aside from a classic presentation or someone volunteering that, hey, I, I've got cancer and I, I have my tib-fib uh, with a operation and internal fixation. I've been in a cast uh, for two weeks and I, I stood up and all of a sudden I got short of breath. Aside from that history, there's not a whole lot that the history is going to help you with, with these people. It's so funny. I get patients with histories like that, and I think, okay, yeah. this person, like, number one diagnosis is PE, and the CT yeah. angiogram is always a negative. <laughs> yep, exactly. So It's so funny. Okay, so when it comes to the exam, then, is there anything sensitive or specific on examination that is helpful? There, there's a lot of things for many disease processes that we look for on examination, but it seems the more we study them, the more things go by the wayside and turn out not to be very specific or sensitive. What's left on the physical exam that we might be able to rely on? I think that for my way of thinking, the, the advantage of a physical exam in someone like this is to find another cause. So you listen to them, you hear a lot of wheezing. When it's, oh, geez, this person is asthmatic. This person's got COPD. You hear a lot of rows when you listen to them. You say, oh, geez, it sounds like they either have pneumonia or maybe they have CHF. They got JBD and the rows and they the big swollen ankles. So maybe I'm thinking more uh, CHF in that person. But I don't think there's anything that I go to the bedside and put my stethoscope on their chest and, and say, oh, yeah, this is a classic finding for a pulmonary embolism on the physical examination. Cyanosis, but you can be cyanotic from a lot of things. Mm. So, uh, again, there's nothing 
either sensitive or specific for a pulmonary embolism. I think you, you get to the bedside and somebody's too tachypneic to give you a great history. There's nothing you're going to on your physical examination that's going to say, okay, I, I've now ruled in pulmonary embolism and ruled out these other things. Mm. Uh, and the other thing is we're, we're so rapid to move on to diagnostics now that we've got the, the bedside ultrasounds and most of us have quick access to a portable chest x-ray, those kind of things. So I, I think at least my personal practices, I'm, I'm really uh, pretty quick to jump to diagnostics from the physical examination. Perfect. If one, one question for you, just Alan, your experience, if you're at the bedside with a patient and like a normal respiratory rate logged on their vitals, do you try to see if they're a little tachypneic? And if they're a little tachypneic, the vital sign that was logged on triage was just like a gas at a respiratory rate, or the respiratory rate's really more like 25, 28, something like that. Does that make you more inclined to think PE if their lungs are nice and quiet? Or after looking at all the, re- the data for this, does that push you more or less? Now, you, you actually bring up two good points. One is never trust the triage respiratory rate. And I think that's an excellent point. But number two, yeah, actually I do. When I see, there's two things. When they're tachypneic and they're tachycardic and their lungs are clear, PE moves way up. And I will tell you, probably more than tachypnea is the tachycardia. Because when you're standing beside them, most of the time, these people, at least in many emergency departments, they're on a monitor so you can see what their heart rate's doing. It's, you're not just looking at the vital signs from the, the, the triage nurse. And they're tachycardic and they're not settling down. A lot of people, you, you get there and they're tachycardic, you watch them and they settle down. These people are, are persistently tachycardic. And you're right, you get a, a respiratory rate of 18 or 16. But when you're talking to the person, they're not finishing their sentences without taking a breath. And I think that's a really good point that you bring up. We have additional cues at, at the bedside that, that look at that. One caveat I would put is that there was a, an article that, that, that we found in Academic Emergency Medicine that said, if their vital signs are abnormal in presentation, in particular, they're tachycardic on presentation, but then as you start to get some labs back or whatnot, their heart rate settles down, that doesn't rule out a pulmonary embolism. They don't have to stay persistently tachycardic, that, that people with an initial tachycardia that settles back down to a normal rate is not a reason to move uh, PE off the uh, differential. And then along those same lines, the quiet chest isn't a requirement either, right? The PyoPed 2 study there was quoted in the article as saying up to 21% can have rails and 6% can have wheezing and 5% can have bronchi. Yeah. I, I, you, you bring up, yeah, you can have abnormalities and still have a PE. I, in the back of my mind, I'm often wondering, is this somebody who always has some rounds or this person always has right. some wheezing? And it just happened that they showed up with their PE and son of a gun, they have some wheezing or some rails. So I, I don't know. And I, I guess we'll, we'll never be able to figure out, is this a novel finding unless, you know, you have um, some medical student you might have them troll through their medical records and see their last visit did the doc note some of these findings. Okay, so then we've gotten our history, we've done our physical exam, and we're moving on to risk scoring. And this is risk scoring for PE to try and determine what kind of evaluation we're going to go down. Table two here in the article on page seven does an outstanding job of detailing four different scoring systems, the Wells, the R Geneva, the PERC, and the YEARS algorithms, all listed there with the criteria and the clinical probabilities. Do you have a preference between all four of these? Yeah, I'm really a simple individual. I like the years. It's like they had two things. That's it. I do. Yeah, the, I think it's interesting. Uh, people in emergency medicine really like the PERC score. 
And obviously, because a, an emergency physician developed it, it has applicability to us. But when you look at all the literature, the pulmonologists and whatnot still like Wells and the revised Geneva score. I don't know that I have a particular inclination to say, yeah, I think this is better than this. Perk is easy. Most of us have been able to memorize that. We don't need to go to MD Calc or something to look that up. But I think the, the one thing with the Perk score is that age limitation makes it a little bit difficult because our population is a little bit uh, older than that, than what we see. They're cut off. But I think when you look at these, number one, I would say, don't just rattle it off in your brain. Go to a site or have it in a, a device and go actually go through it and take it off. Whether you like, like MD Calc's got them all on it, but there are other applications you can get for your smartphone and whatnot uh, to do the same thing. But I, I think when you look at something that's got any more than three items to it, you really want to work through it with an app or something or a table or have it on the screen saved on your computer with it. Because you start to, to forget to add things up and, and whatnot. You look at the, the revised Geneva score, it's like pain on lower limb and unilateral edema. Well, that gets four. I don't remember it was four. Was, it, was that one? Because a lot of the others just give it one, that type of thing. So I think the scoring systems are really good. I really like them because they take a little bit of our prejudices out of the picture. Mm -hmm. But you got to make sure that you do them right. I find that I'm using a lot of years, especially because I like it in pregnant ladies. But is there right. any specific patients where you go to other scoring systems because you're like, this has been better studied in these patients, or you just find that you get more reliable results from that for that kind of patient? I, I think I, I'm like you. I like the years because it, it, it's got the application to the pregnant patient. And we just spent 20 minutes talking about, okay, we, we pay attention to the respiratory rate. We pay attention to their heart rate. Uh, a little bit to their history. None of us said, oh yeah, when I go in there, I, the main thing I really ask, I make sure I ask them about their hemoptysis. We don't, but that shows up on, on all the scoring systems. So yeah. yeah, I think what what happens is all of us, if you look at the years and you really distill it down, years is just basically what's your gestalt is really what it comes down to. And I think a lot of us like to practice that way because we think we're really great doctors or PAs or nurse practitioners. But the reality of it is, if you really want to get an accurate read on this, you got to do one of the more formal scoring systems, which the other thing is, and, and I'll mention this prematurely here, the threshold for which we're going to go off and order a D-dimer study is so low that no matter what these, the, the score comes out, we're going to go, yeah, I'm still going to get the D-dimer. Okay. Well, that's a great actually segue into further diagnostics. So we've done our scoring. We've got some diagnostic studies we're going to order. Let's start with our ECG, our electrocardiogram. We're looking for those classic findings, but the classic findings that S1, Q3, T3 pattern is present how often? Not enough. Not enough, right? It's just I'm going to remember 3.7% until the yeah. day I die now because I had that beaten into me in residency and I feel so validated that I've, I don't think I've ever seen that in a PE. Yeah, it, it is. It, 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 you're right. It is about 3.7% of the time. Yeah, I learned a long time ago it wasn't valid, which helped me because I could never remember. Was it S3Q7? What the hell was it? So once somebody told me it wasn't accurate, it was like, great. I don't have to remember this anymore. But you, you bring up a good point. The S1Q3, T3 just does not have enough sensitivity and specificity to, to make it valid. The main thing is people talk about is that that the tachycardia, resting tachycardia is the most common EKG finding. And you guys both mentioned it and you're going to notice that at the bedside. AFib is the most common arrhythmia, but it's not an independent predictor. And we've mm -hmm. mentioned that as well. 
Okay, and then we move on to labs, and of course, we're going to get that D-dimer, and the only question there is whether or not we're going to use some kind of age-adjusted cutoff, so it's still the, the best recommendation to use the age-adjusted cutoff in these patients? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely. You're going to be really chasing your tail if, if you don't age-adjust these people, especially, but I love at our shop, our normal used to be 0 0.5, 0.5 was our normal, and then one day the lab switched it to 500. And all it was was they, they changed the, the, the reporting system, whether what they re reported it in. And, but didn't tell us. And so the first time you saw it, you had some, holy smokes, this person's got a, a D-dimer of 500? Oh my God, get who's ever on the CAT scan table off of there. We gotta get this person down there. And then like, oh, another one, holy smokes, it's an epidemic of, of bees. <laughs> uh, and then finally it was like, somebody call the lab and see what the, what's going on down there. But yeah. It's nanograms for ML is it's you know going to be different than whatever they were reporting before a at any rate. But yeah, it, you have to age adjust it. They're absolutely age adjusting. It's the only way to go with them. Perfect. And then typically those order sets or the, the automatic ordering is going to include a troponin and a BNP, but really both of those are more just prognostic indicators for what you're going to do down the line and how the patient is going to do. They're not really there to assist you to make this diagnosis. Is that right? I, I have great point. Really good point, Sam. Yeah, they're, they're real good at when you start looking at the prognostic risk factors, but as a diagnostic tool, no, not much value there. And especially with the high sensitivity troponins, because that three month old we were worried about also has a high positive, high sensitivity troponin. Of course. Fair well, enough. One question about that, Al. So when we're looking at those risk scoring systems and the and a D dimer, are you doing D-dimers in low risk and intermediate risk? Is there any group that you're immediately jumping to CT? Are you even considering it for some high risk people? Oh, okay. That, I thought you were, let me answer the question. I thought you were going to ask, and I'll answer the question you actually did. I thought you were going to ask, you know, if you have somebody who's clearly low risk, are you getting a D-dimer? My answer is no. If they're very much low risk, I'm, I'm not. But if they're intermediate risk, I'm definitely getting it. If they're high risk, but I don't have that high of a clinical suspicion, I think they're more just CHF. I'm going to get it. If they're really high risk, and we have one of the, the cases that, that we talked about was actually my case. It was just like this person's too sick. Actually, even started the thrombolytic before we even got the CAT scan on them. So yeah, I will go right to CAT scan. If, if, it's one of those, you know what? If the D-dimer comes back negative in this high risk person, I'm still getting a CAT scan because you know, I, I'm just going to pretend it's, it's a false negative. I'm still going to go for it. So yeah, you have somebody who's high enough risk. You don't need to, to, to get the D-dimer to help you. Just go ahead and, and use your clinical judgment and go right to the CAT scan. I especially liked in this article where it talked about how your D-dimer levels fall as the clock gets older, because it vindicated some of that, like my older, my higher risk cancer patients. I don't want to see that D-dimer because it's just going to confuse me and they can have a lot of clot there, but it could be old. And that's why their dimer won't be as high. Yeah, that's, that TR is a really good point that yeah, it does drop as the clock gets older. But the other thing is, if you have a lot of chronic clot laying around, you may wind up, yeah, you got a lot of clot, but your D-dimer is still normal because you, you stopped breaking it down. Interesting. Under diagnostic imaging, you guys already touched on CT. Now, x-ray is described in here, but honestly, if you're worried about a PE, you're, you're headed for some kind of angiography, whether that's CT, MR, or ventilation perfusion imaging, your plain film x-ray is just there to guide you if there's some alternative diagnosis found. Is that right? Yeah. They talk about some finding there. There's a Hampton's hump you can see, and 
they took a bunch of chest radio radiographers and showed them x-rays of people with PEs. And unless they had this whole constellation of symptoms, nobody made the diagnosis. I remember when I was a resident, and this is back in the late 70s, 79, 80s. So their CT was not an option. Um, there was actually, there was one CT in the entire city of Philadelphia at that time. And all they did was heads because the brain didn't move that much. You couldn't do anything out, any body imaging. Mm -hmm. And this person came in short of breath, had a lot of risk factors. And it wasn't my case, uh, but I know I was there. So I'll take partial responsibility for this debacle. So it was like, uh, oh my God, they have a PE and it was a young, thin person. So you could hear breath sounds no matter what. And they shot the x-ray, but before the x-ray was developed, there was nothing digital back then. It would be a good 15 minutes before you could see the film. They said, hey, nuclear medicine can take them right away. So they sent them down for a scan, a nuclear medicine scan. And the scan came back as a, the radiologist was going, we have no idea what the hell we're looking at. And then it, the x-ray came back. They had 100% pneumo on the ones. <laughs> yeah, everybody's, oh, so we got a case report out of, this is what a nuclear medicine study looks like in somebody with 100% pneumothorax, which never should have been ordered. So yeah, yeah, it's CAT scans your go-to for that. And if not, now, the interesting thing is your sensitivity and specificity for the, the radionucleotide studies are the same as for a CAT scan. They're very good. It's just been. that we like the CAT scan because it gives you so much other information. It's, no, the pulmonary embolism, there's no PE, but guess what? They have a, a mass here. They, they've got this pneumonia that nobody picked up. I'm amazed at how many times the, the CAT scan picks up a pneumonia that I knew the person mm -hmm. had, but it didn't show up on, on the chest x-ray. So yeah, the CAT scan is the best one that we usually go to. But if you don't have it, the uh, nuclear medicine study is just as good. It's just as accurate. I do not like the intermediate ventilation perfusion study readings. I never know what to do with those things. Because th that, that's why I like the CT so much, because you either see or you don't see a clot. Now, there's always the bag of this was a poor study, and I can't really tell you. But when it comes when, to the nuclear medicine scans, you get this kind of low probability, intermediate or high probability. What do you do with these intermediates? I, I will tell you right now that we saw a huge change in that. Number one, the younger radiologists give you a definitive answer. It's the older ones who, who hedge a lot, could be, can't rule out, will be repeat at 20 after seven, that type of thing. The new ones, the newer people and the newer equipment, they'll give us a definitive answer. No risk. That's it. No, no PE. And part of that came from I don't know at your sites, but for about six months or longer, there was a shortage of the iodinated contrast material. So yeah. all our PEs were being done as nuclear studies. There was no ventilation. They just did the straight perfusion. And we were getting definitive answers. Just, <laughs> yep, no, no PE. Even in the, the ones with a, a crummy looking chest x-ray, these guys were very good with that. They were very helpful. But it was the young guys who would do it. The, the older ones were like, by this criteria there's always a 10 percent chance of whatever yeah I, I look a negative nuclear medicine study still has a, a small percentage risk of having a, a, a pulmonary embolism in it but it's like everything else we, we do you get a cat scan what's the reading come back no central pulmonary embolism can't rule out sub sub there may be a capillary in the left upper lobe that's occluded so yeah you it's not always definitive either and I was interested to see magnetic resonance angiography or MR angiography listed here as an option. So that's a thing for patients it, now. 
it's coming. What the contrast you have to use for it is it's so weird. It's some iron preparation that they use to for people with who are really anemic and, and they're going to give them this iron infusion. So now you're injecting all these iron molecules and I don't know whether it's ferrous or ferric or which one's magnetic and whatnot. I, I can just imagine these things like, you remember those old toys that you used to have where it had all those little uh, iron filings or those little metal filings and, and it had a face on there and you could put like a beard on it and all those kind yeah. of things. Yep. I imagine all these particles in the person's lungs shifting all the way to the right, shifting all the way to the left, to the top, to the bottom. So yeah, but that's the, the contrast you use for that. So it is interesting. Say so the, the, the good news is you don't have a PE. The better news is we cured your anemia. You've got an yeah. iron transfusion. There you go. That's right. We found this is going to cure your shortness of breath now. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that 30% of those MR angiograms are unreadable because I, I feel like trying to get somebody to hold still that's breathing a little fast for an MRI. I was like, okay, like I'll, I'll keep it in the back of my head. But yeah, exactly. Things that struck out to me just as I am seeing this evolve as my career goes on, I'm seeing more and more of these different phased CTs. And I found it reassuring that pretty much all of them are about the same. As long as you're running contrast through their pulmonary arteries, you're going to see it. And that's 95% sensitive. So I thought that was great. But having been a few rural places where they announce on Monday morning, oh, the CAT scanner is going to be down this week. I thought that the sensitivity of a good multi-organ ultrasound protocol was something that, okay, if I was worried about somebody in a little rural hospital and I had a good ultrasound of their heart, their lungs and their legs that really concerned me for a DVT and a PE, that being 90% sensitive, 86% specific was really impressive. Like I felt like that was enough for me to make the case to anticoagulate them and transfer them. I think you, you bring up a good point if you're in a rural site. The problem with that is you really have to have a really good ultrasonographer to do that. that that's a, if, if you look at all the parts of it, there's a lot of steps in there that you, you have to include, which, which far exceed my ultrasound capabilities. So yeah, that's number one. Number two, yeah, you're right. If you hit all of those, you can either rule in or pretty well rule out a pulmonary embolism, but it, and it's not just ultrasonography, it's ultrasonography and echo that goes part of its echo, part of its ultrasonography. When you're looking at it, you really have to have someone who, who's pretty good at this, but you bring up a good point. If you have somebody that's semi low risk and their D-dimer is a little bit high, if you rule out a, a DVT in the lower extremities, you're pretty comfortable. That person probably doesn't have uh, a pulmonary embolism. Because there's just a, such a high correlation between DVTs and it's not absolute. And we've all seen people with a, a PE and somebody goes ahead and then does a lower extremity DVT study and nothing shows up. But I agree with you. If you don't have access to the, the CAT scanner, you don't have access to nuclear medicine. If you have good ultrasonography skills, you, you can get a pretty good feel for it. Or at least what you're going to find out is you don't have a significant PE. You're not going to see a big dilator right ventricle and whatnot. All right, so we're moving on to treatment. We've made the diagnosis of PE, and now we're looking at therapies for treatment. Let's just start with the most critical, right? We're trying to oxygenate this person. We've got standard nasal cannula. We've got non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, which we're trying to avoid, equally intubation, which we're trying to avoid. But since the era of COVID, we're using a lot more of the high-flow nasal cannula approach. Is there any evidence for that in PE? It is anecdotal stuff. That's about all you're going to get with that. And look, I, I love the uh, high velocity, high flow nasal cannulas. I, I, especially in the kids and whatnot. And what I look at it is it's a way to get somebody virtually 100% FiO2 
without giving them any kind of sensation that they're suffocating or smothering or anything like that. And in the case of pulmonary embolism, you don't screw around with their physiology. They're controlling what, what's going on with their pulmonary vascular return and everything else. We're not screwing it up. So I think it's a great first option. And if the person gets better with it, great. If not, though, you're going to have to at some point think about doing something with positive pressure, either the BiPAP or the intubation. What I always like is, and whenever I hear experts talk about this, they're like, oh, you just watch the patient. And it's, no, I can't watch somebody breathing 40 times a minute with retractions and their pulse ox is 80% and not stick a tube in them. I understand you've got this mindset of, oh, if you watch them long enough, it's no, it's come down to the bedside and you watch them for a little bit. But all of us are clinicians and you're looking at this person who's really struggling to breathe. And Richie Cantor makes a, a, a good comment and he'll talk about these cases and he'll say, I've seen this movie before and I know how it ends. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly right. I've seen this patient before and I know ultimately they're getting intubated. They're going to get tired. They're going to get more hypoxic and they're going to be in worse physiologic shape when I finally do decide to paralyze them and put a tube in them. Mm -hmm. So I, I think there's something to be said for, yes, hold off on the positive pressure if you can, but don't be foolish about it and just sit there and, and not intubate them because somebody said you have to wait until they become agonal before you put the tube in them. Gotcha. Al, have you ever been on BiPAP or high flow? Has anybody ever put you on it? Just to see Yeah, I've, I've actually not symptomatically, but I, when BiPAP first came out, I put the mask on and played around with it and stuff. And when the high flow came out, did the same, played around with it. But the nice thing about high flow is I got the world's worst um, sinuses. I, I live just outside of Philadelphia and the high humidity and stuff. Oh, it was great. It just moisturized everything. It was, it was great after that. But I have been on, I have tried them both. I have not tried endotracheal intubation while awake. Oh, I've had gosh. some surgeries. Yeah. But other than that, no. You're not a real anesthesiologist, but I, I agree no. with you. Well, Flo, I was in Colorado when I tried it. It was the most wonderful sensation on my poor dry yeah. nose ever. And I would recommend it to any patient if they were worried about something. There's no anxiety. It just feels amazing. Yeah. And it makes noise. Most important yeah. thing is whatever you try should make noise so that people think you're doing something. That's right. That's right. Fluid management, we already touched on. So this is going to be yeah. judicious fluid administration. When it comes to the hypotensive patient, or maybe somebody you put on BiPAP, they're getting hypotensive and we're going to reach for some kind of presser. Is there a preferred presser we should be reaching for? Or are you just going to go on straight to the norepi in most cases? I think norepi is probably going to be your go-to. Think of the right ventricle same way as the left ventricle. I've got a failing right ventricle. It needs a little bit more ionotropy. So I would certainly start with the norepi. It's got a little bit of a cardiac effect, but not much. But then move on to dobutamine or even epinephrine if you have to, to get the, the squeeze out of that right ventricle. I'm, I'm, but I do believe you guys alluded to afterload reducing them. There are a number of, of experts that say you should give these people 40 milligrams of Lasix, just like you would uh, somebody in left-sided heart failure, because you want to shrink that ventricle down. And I think when we look at that big dilated right ventricle, there's a couple of things going on there. Number one, it's dilated, which is, is telling you, the clinician at the bedside, hey, just like a left ventricle, I'm in failure. I've, I've dilated, I'm in failure. But the other thing is it pushes the septum over into the left ventricle. And so it limits the left ventricular ability to fill. And it also limits the left ventricular outflow. But that big dilated right ventricle has a number of physiologic effects in addition to, to just giving us a heads up that 
the clot load in the pulmonary tree is, is pretty severe. That's a great point. And then anticoagulation, of course, that's a yep. mainstay of therapy as well. And for me, this is primarily whether or not I'm considering sending them home or if they're getting admitted to the hospital. IV heparin is for the critically ill patient. It's interesting you mentioned IV heparin and, and early on, that's what I thought. It just go to IV heparin. A lot of people are saying jump on the low molecular weight heparins early on. And part of the reason is you can just slam it into somebody relatively quickly. It works relatively smoothly versus the, the standard heparin, which is up and down, up and down. And the, the, the heparin's not going to dissolve the clot that's there. It's just going to prevent new clot from forming. And then the low molecular weight heparin will do that just as well as the, the standard unfractionated heparin. So some people, obviously, if somebody's in shock, you're not going to give them a sub-Q medicine and hope it's going to work. The person that's not quite in shock, but looks like they're pretty sick, but some people are saying, yeah, just get that low molecular weight heparin on board real quickly and see if that'll help. But also by the same token, if somebody's that sick, we're thinking a little bit beyond the just standard heparin. And now we're into that huge controversy. I think right up to that point, Sam, everybody's in agreement. Get some heparin on board. Let's get this person anticoagulated. And the next step after that, there's nobody who agrees with what to do next. Yeah, that's, again, a great segue. I remember when lytics were common, and then they were uncommon, and then we did mm. catheter-directed lytics, and then we decided we weren't going to do catheter-directed lytics, and then it was a multi-specialty decision. So I think the latest I've heard is we get our cardiology and our pulmonology colleagues to sit and have a little round table, and then somewhere between those two, somebody says, okay, yeah, I guess we could give this person some lytics. And then they decide on whether or not they want to use a catheter to do it or not. And there's a couple of proprietary systems that you can thread those catheters in the pulmonary artery and administer them right at the, the point of the clot. And then now they're doing also intravascular thrombectomies, minimally invasive stuff, where our cardiology and vascular colleagues will thread a catheter in there and do a, a directed thrombectomy without having to systemically anticoagulate them. So it just seems like the Wild West, depending on wherever it is that you're currently working and what the standard is in the hospital where you're at. Is I, there I, anything new in that realm? <laughs> the, it's, the, the problem right now is there's no really good randomized controlled trial. The, the trial we all want to see is Mr. Smith comes in, they're high risk or they're intermediate high risk, and they get randomized to just heparin, systemic thrombolytics, and catheter-directed thrombolytics, or thrombectomy. Mm -hmm. That's the study we all need to see. Because mm -hmm. right now, the interventional cardiologists or um, radiologists are saying, oh, yeah, we should just go in and, and do a, a thrombectomy on them if it's between 7 a.m. and 5 p.m., which is actually, honest to God, the truth in many places. The, it's, what I love is like, no, 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 that person doesn't need a thrombectomy. And then they come in at eight in the morning and go, I thought about that. And I, I think it might be a good idea for this. So you look at that. There is no great definitive evidence-based study that says any one thing is better than anything else. Everybody agrees they need not heparin. There's good data that systemic thrombolytics are useful in the high-risk patients. I think if you look at the, the algorithm we, we, we put together there, there is good data to support that. And I feel comfortable that in that, that patient, a high-risk patient, I would give systemic lytics. I, I think that's a, a reasonable thing. There's pretty good data for that. Whether catheter-directed lytics or thrombectomy is a better option, 
I don't know because I don't, I don't think that, that there's enough data out there to say one way or the other. If you look at the studies, all of them are single arm studies, which is we did a bunch of thrombectomies on people and they got better. Mm-hmm. And they look at their, their outcomes are the, the ratio of the right ventricle to the left ventricle. And we had a big dilated right ventricle and a tiny little left ventricle. And we did a thrombectomy and now they're just about the same size again. Therefore, the thrombectomy was a good thing. Everybody who pays attention to evidence-based medicine knows that there's lots of studies out there where we looked at this objective test and they got better. But then when you looked at the actual outcomes of the patients, it didn't change. The people who didn't get the, the study and the people who did get the study, their tests looked better, but the outcomes didn't change. And I think there's enough experience with all of, of us out there. That's been the case. I'm a little hesitant to jump in with both feet yet on the, the thrombectomies or the catheter-directed thrombolytics. I will say in a lot of institutions that catheter-directed thrombolytic has fallen by the wayside and, and people feel like if I'm going to go in there and try and thread something into the pulmonary arteries, I might as well just go in there and get the clot itself the out. Clot. Yeah. Is the idea behind thrombolytics, systemic or however they receive it, in this scenario to reduce mortality, reduce long-term pulmonary hypertension and heart failure, or is it just to try and keep the person who is acutely dying from from decompensating in front of you? I I think it's all of the above. There's data that in high-risk patients, if you look at them a year or two down the road, if you got rid of that clot load in the pulmonary arteries, they have better pulmonary function down the road than the people who didn't. Certainly the people who are, are dying, you know, in front of you, giving them a lytic makes a difference. And I've had that happen. And one of the cases actually, we, we talked about that. And I think the science right now is so unclear that having a, a pulmonary embolism response team, a PERT team of some mm. type is extremely useful in any institution. Otherwise, it's who's on call today. It's just interventional radiology. They say do it this way. Cardiology says do it this way. Pulmonology says do it another way. I think if done correctly and the way ours is supposed to work is we call the magic number and say, we have a pulmonary embolism. We want you to assemble the Avengers and you get the cardiologist, the interventional radiologist, the pulmonologist all on the phone with you at the same time. And so you're sitting there real time. This is what they look like. They're saying, what's this, this test show? Has this changed any? What other risk factors? Oh, they're already on this. Okay, that's going to change our management a little bit. And then everybody gets their heads together and decides what to do. And I think that's the ideal way to manage these really sick, these high-risk patients. I, th- I think traditionally it's been, okay, I'm just going to call the, the pulmonologist on calls and Depending on who you got, if you got an aggressive pulmonologist, you got systemic thrombolytics. If you got a conservative one, they just got standard heparin. So I think putting all the minds together at that moment on the phone makes it a lot more universal approach to how to, you're getting input from everybody on this. And I I think there's a lot of value to that Uh, because you've got people, aggressive interventional people at the same time, they have to win over a uh, more conservative pulmonologist who's, no, I think we can manage them this way or that way type of thing. And I think that's an extremely useful way to, to approach these patients. If you don't have that, and it's just you alone, it's all communication has been wiped out. You're by yourself in the emergency room and this person has a pulmonary embolism. You, your opinion is this person's an extremist. 
I would not hesitate to, to pull the trigger on the, the uh, systemic thrombolytics. That's what we have. We, we don't, we're not, right. we're, we're not going to be able to do much else be, besides that. But I would not hesitate to, to, to pull the trigger on that. And just like we said, I wouldn't hesitate uh, to go ahead and be aggressive with my, my airway management too. There is a mention of ECMO, and that's really just a bridge to some kind of other invasive procedure for these critically ill patients, right? Sure. Yeah, I, I, it is, although I, I, I know of um, institutions where once you have an ECMO team in there, they feel they have a responsibility to put people on ECMO. I, at our institution, we do have ECMO. We, we do have the ability to do it, but the ECMO people are just another arm in the PERT team. So you, you can't have the, oh, gee, we only did five ECMOs last month. We were below our, our average. So let's put this person on it. So you, they're part of the team and they're reasonable about it anyway. They're not unreasonable about who gets on ECMO. But if you think about it, for 90% of the people listening to this podcast or reading this article, ECMO is something they're going to have to transfer somebody to another institution to get done. Yeah. So it's yeah. one of those things that, yeah, it's out there, but let's talk about what, what, is going to be practical for most institutions. And I think having been in that rural place, I think the, the, what this article gave me was I can do as much as I can for them in the little emergency room that I've got. If that, like you said, if they're an extremist and you know the PE's there, you've got to give them whatever systemic thrombolytics you've got. And then if people aren't wanting you to transfer, you've got to make the case to them that they need either that, whatever the next thing down the line is that you can get them to, whether that's catheter directed or ECMO or whatever you can do to get them more stable than they are now. And, and that's a lot of emergency medicine, a lot, a lot of what we do, even in, in an institution, like I'm in a, a larger institution where a cath cabbage, so we, we have the ECMO and whatnot, but there's a lot of things I get that I can't manage. So we, for example, we see a large amount of children in our emergency department, but we don't have a PG unit anymore. It's like many places. So that's stabilization and move them on. So a lot of emergency medicine has evolved that way. The, the entire critical care area of that hospital depends on you stabilizing somebody and then getting them to a more definitive care, whether it's the ICU two flights up or the ICU two helicopter flights away. So <laughs> that's so true. Okay. Let's talk about pregnant patients briefly. We mentioned the years algorithm, which allows us to actually go down a pathway for risk and diagnostic strategies for pregnant patients. Is that still the best method for assessing our pregnant patients when we're talking about pulmonary embolism? If there is an award that should be given to somebody who made my life so much easier, it's whoever came up with that algorithm. It is, it's a great algorithm. It really is. If it, it, It's basically do the years and then add a D-dimer to it and you're done. And I like the D-dimer. It's, it's, there's articles out there in the first trimester, the D-dimer should be normal. In the second trimester, it's roughly two times normal. And third, that never works out because every time I've ever gotten a D-dimer on a pregnant patient, it's been abnormal. But this is really nice. It's, it's, they either are negative for years and negative for their D-dimer, in which case you're done. If they're over 500 or less than 500 or over 1,000 or less than 1,000, two real clean cutoffs, no multiply it by their birth date, subtract the, the phase <laughs> of the moon, none of that stuff. This is, is a, a nice, this is the gold standard for how to write an algorithm for emergency medicine. Agreed. Perfect. One jump off from that, Al. Sorry, but just, I think so much of my PE management and how I teach it to students is based on this look. It's so hard to find. You have to focus on the clinical scores. With that in mind, for the patients that once they get through the years and the perk and everything else, 
if they're going to go home, are you using Hestia or are you using a different criteria to decide who's a safe patient to put on a DOAC and discharge home? I'm older. Actually, if you add both your ages, you might come up to mine. <laughs> The idea of sending a pulmonary embolism home is, ooh, that gives me chills. <laughs> so what I like about the Hestia criteria is there's almost always something in it that says, oh, no, you can't go home. <laughs> but of, of, of all the criteria, I really like the Hestia because it's very practical and it's, it makes sense. It's like you should meet these criteria. If you meet these criteria, you probably have a pretty insignificant pulmonary embolism and you're going to do well at home. And it's well studied. So yeah, I, if I'm going to send anybody home, I'm going to do it with the Hestia criteria. The other thing is I am probably going to contact a consultant, a pulmonologist or an internist to get them to buy into it because I'm going to have to have them follow up with somebody. Yeah. On the other end, for the severe patients, are you using PESI or are you using something else? Does your PERT team prefer a certain score? Interestingly enough, for all the scores that are out there, the, the PERT team does not uh, have a particular preference for the scoring system. For me, I, the one that I like the best is the European Society of Cardiology Prognostic Classification Table 3. I really like that they gave us low risk, intermediate low risk, intermediate high risk, and high risk. And, and I really like the way they, they broke it down in terms of the intermediate low risk and the intermediate high risk. That's where your debate is. And the intermediate High risk is the group where you can argue systemic thrombolytics or not, but it certainly should come into consideration. But the other two, it's clear, thrombolytics should not be in the discussion. You just want to give them heparin. That's great. Gotcha. That brings us to the end of the discussion then, because we've hit disposition and hopefully passed the stable patient on to one of our colleagues or maybe even sent them home, which we're coming to do here, I think, more and more often. Thank you so much, Al, for being on the podcast with us. And again, for you listening, this is the August 2023 article in Emergency Medicine Practice on the Evidence-Based Management of PE. Keep it in your pocket. Look for those clinical pathways to use at the bedside. And don't forget your scoring systems. We'll put links to all of those MD Calc calculators in both the pathways and in our podcast notes. And thank you so much, Al. I really appreciate you joining us and sharing that knowledge with us. Oh, thank, thanks for the invite, but you guys are going to be sorry when you're trying to edit this thing down to 20 minutes. <laughs> hey, it's okay. Our, our listeners are accustomed to an hour-long session, as long as it's helpful Fair to enough. their practice. I, I, I can listen to you all day long, honestly. Thank you so much for being all right, here. Thank you very much, guys, for the invite. Well, that's it, everyone. I sincerely hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as we enjoy talking to Al. He is just an encyclopedia of information. And this article on pulmonary embolism was outstanding. I can't wait for you to read it, ebmedicine.net. Remember all those resources. The article is available in the mobile app. The pathways are available at clinicalpathways.ebmedicine.net. There's a new CME map that you can look up the state you're licensed in, and it'll tell you all of the things EB Medicine can offer you. There is just so much information out there. And that's not even mentioning the urgent care articles, the pediatric emergency medicine practice articles, just volumes of information. ebmedicine.net, your one-stop shop for all your CME needs. Until next time, everyone, be safe. <laughs>